glad you're here today. Thanks so much for coming and worshiping with us here at Southbridge. If you're a guest, I just want to welcome you and say thanks so much for checking out a church at a movie theater. We're glad that you're here today. And uh, today we're doing Discovering Southbridge. It's something we do every once in a while, about once a month. And I'm going to be underneath the blue tent. If you and I have never met in person, if today's your first time or tenth time, and uh, we've never met, I'd love to meet you today. And so if you want to go hang out out there underneath the tent, and uh, we'd love to be able to do that. And you can see some different things that are happening at our church. You look in your worship program. Um, you'll uh, see the connection card there. We ask you as a guest if you wouldn't mind filling that out, taking out the first-time guest kiosk. you got uh, Celebrate Recovery happening this Thursday night. Joe's going to finish sharing the rest of his story, and so you're invited to come on Thursday night to Celebrate Recovery and hear Joe share the rest of his story. And uh, today we're beginning a brand-new series in the book of Philippians. We're going to go verse by verse through the entire book. 104 verses in there that I believe, if you stick with us through this series, God will use to shape, change your life, change your relationship. Uh, with Jesus Christ. So the book's really got a theme of joy. And so if you look at commentaries and whatnot, they'll talk about joy being the theme of the book. And you'll see joy mentioned just, uh, I think it's about 16 times in those 104 verses. So it's mentioned a bunch of times, but really the, the theme is growth and that you'll grow in knowing Jesus Christ better. And then guess what the outflow of that is? It's joy. And so we're going to be going through that book and talking about that. We're going to really set up the series today as we look at a prayer that Paul prays at the very beginning of the book. And I'm going to pray for us uh, just that God would open our hearts as we get into uh, this book series this morning. So let me pray. Father, thank you for every person that's assembled here this morning in your name. And uh, I pray, God, that you'd be glorified through the words that are said and the things that are done. I pray for the the message that you'll give me for this service. I pray you'd speak through my lips in some supernatural way, the words that need to be heard and need to be said. And I pray for the fellowship that'll happen afterwards. I pray that you'd help us to linger uh, even Though there's pressure that movies are starting and stuff, that you just give us a freedom to stay and hang out and do whatever you want us to do and uh, care for one another and love one another well. And uh, God, just uh, please open your word and open our hearts. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. We're going to be in the book of Philippians, and we're going to look at the first 11 verses. If you want to go ahead and turn there, you can. It's towards the back of your New Testament, and we're going to be talking about that. And the letter of Philippians is actually a letter that was written by uh, Paul, a guy who helped start the church 10 years earlier, which got me thinking this week about us as a church. I don't know if you saw this on social media or not, but Southbridge, we had our eight-year anniversary, our eight-year birthday. So we turned eight this year, which is pretty exciting. Yeah, you can give the Lord a hand for that. That's a... A praise in and of itself, the fact that we exist. I was driving home uh, that night, and I had posted on my uh, blog, and my neighbor apparently reads that, I uh, posted on my blog that we had turned eight, and my next-door neighbor was standing on his driveway. I stopped and to talk to him. He said, you guys turned eight today. Congratulations. And I shared with him a statistic, some of you may know, is that the most church plants, the majority of them, actually close their doors in the first three years. And so the very fact that we're alive is a reason to celebrate, but um, just survival isn't the goal, right? Like we want to see a healthy church, that God's changing people's lives, and that's really what's happened here. And so we have reason to celebrate because God's been breaking addictions and setting people free and taking people like Joe, who shared a story earlier, who's got stuff that's going on that holds them back from knowing Christ and re- removes, releases them from the past. They can move on, verse we'll talk about in this book in Philippians. And so God does a work, and he changes people's eternities. And so as I was thinking about that this week, I started thinking about the people, and I'll probably share some of the stories uh, in this message of some of those people. I'll plan on sharing some of those. And uh, Carrie uh, Evans shared a, a picture on our Facebook page. It got me thinking about some of that, of some of the early days of our church. And so I brought that for you if you wanted to see some of it. See Pastor Jad, he was there from the very beginning. wasn't a pastor at the time, um, but I wore that jacket every week. I'm not sure why, but I uh, did. And uh, see, some, see how small it was down here at the country club? hanging out down there, and this was some of, one of the first services we had at the theater. Uh, I think it was my bad idea to have the church plants, but uh, we did. They were there, and now they're not, because there's smarter people involved in making those decisions. And so it was just cool to see some of that, and I even see some of the faces that are on there right now. Many of them have moved to different places or are doing different things, and some of them are on our staff now, and uh, it's exciting to think about how God's changed some of their lives. And then I started thinking about and then God used those people to impact other people's lives. And you, some of you, several of you uh, serve here in this church or you give or you're involved, you're connected with the mission of this church. And so you're partners in the gospel going forward through this place. And so think about this. Some of the things you've done, money you've given, cables that you've laid, set up team and hospitality team, words that you've said, the way you've greeted people. God's used that to not just give people like a better day. Okay, that's nice. Encourage someone. That's all great. But he's changed eternities. Now let that sink in for a moment. Some of you have done, whether you're on the worship team and maybe a prayer that you prayed or words that you said or you greeted somebody, you invited somebody to church, actually impacted their lives in such a way that whether it was you sharing it with them or whether it was through the message or whatever it was, that God used you to take somebody who was on their way to eternal destruction, hell, and has transformed their eternity so now they're going to be with Jesus forever. 
That's pretty amazing. And God does that. That should rock your world that God would use you in some way. And if he hasn't used you in that way yet, Lord willing, he will. Because guess what? We've got a lot of days ahead of us still too. And so one of the ironic things that happened for me this week is that on the very day that it was our birthday, it was March 4th, is our actual birthday, was Wednesday this week. I was sitting in a meeting, and so I'm feeling all nostalgic and thinking through these people, and Carrie's posted this thing on Facebook, which I'm looking at during the meeting, and all that is a phone meeting. There's lots of people. Oh, everybody there was way smarter than me, so it was totally fine uh, that I wasn't totally engaged, but it was about our building. Uh, that we're, we're putting together. And some of you may remember, but last April, uh, about 80-some of you got together and we were talking about the plan and how to develop a plan that would be less expensive than when we originally were planning. We're going to put it on our property over here in Glenwood. And they told us we we're going to break ground um, late spring, early summer uh, this year. And I was watching how they're going to arrange chairs and angle walls and all that kind of stuff and just thinking about the people that are going to be impacted in the days ahead. So who are some of those people? Maybe it's, some, maybe it's my neighbor. He told me he'd come to the first service, and maybe it's some of your neighbors, and maybe it's some of your friends, and maybe it's people we don't even know yet. Then I started thinking about our future, so I'm feeling all nostalgic, and here's what's ironic. On our birthday, then I just keep thinking about the days ahead, like what's going to happen next. And I started thinking through the building process, and so they're going to tell us that we can break ground, and the latest will probably be like in June, and so early summer, late spring maybe. And so they clear off trees, right? Have you ever seen this before? And maybe we'll go out there. I'm sure we'll go out there and pray, uh, but maybe we'll have a service out there, some kind of ceremony, and and then uh, what's going to happen is our outreach team's been working with uh, just some ideas of how can we reach the construction workers and different people that will be out there, plumbers and electricians. So it's not just another building that they built. So they can see the love of Christ. And the whole church is going to be invited in whatever way you'd like to serve, taking meals out there, praying for people, writing notes, all kinds of different stuff. So that invitation will come. But just imagine you're one of the people that goes out on the property. And so you get to see the process of how the building happens. Have you ever been around a construction site? They'll lay the foundation first. And after they lay the foundation, they'll probably be messy. They'll be like a gravel driveway. Eventually, they'll put in a paved driveway. And then they'll put up a frame. And then they'll put the, a roof on the, the building. And then after that, they'll start doing inside stuff, electrical and drywall, plumbing, all those different kinds of things. They'll put some walls up. It'll look like a structure at some point before they put the windows in. All that, all that stuff will happen. And in the meantime, they'll have signs everywhere. Like, here's where you dump your trash, dumping zone, and like hard hat area. You've got to have a hard hat on. People are shooting nail guns up, through the, up on the rafters and all that kind of stuff. So you have all those signs. But the sign that I started thinking about was the sign that says, a work in progress. Now, I don't know if they'll have this on the outside of our church, but wherever. But while the church is being built, there's going to be a sign that says, work in progress until it's completed. And I thought, what an appropriate sign for us as a church. Because we've been a work in progress the whole time. And we're going to be a work in progress. Even when they complete that building, we're going to be a work in progress. You know why? Because we're a bunch of people, individuals, that are a work in progress. Which is really what the book of Philippians is all about. And how Paul starts the book of Philippians, talking about being a work in progress. It says in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, that we'll get to today in this, this prayer, He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. So he's still doing the work. He started the work, and it comes as the work starts when you place your faith in Jesus Christ. If you haven't done that, you can do that today. And then it goes on as he continues to refine us through experiences, through his word, through being around other Christians, through being with non-Christians, through all the experiences we have through life. And he's doing a work in this process. And we are a work in progress until we either die or Jesus comes back, until the day of Christ Jesus when we stand before him and give an account for our salvation and our lives. In the meantime, we're all a work in progress. So we're going to talk about that today in Philippians chapter 1. I invite you to enjoy me if you haven't found it already. In Philippians chapter 1, we're going to look at the first 11 verses. And uh, what's happening here, the context is actually in Acts chapter 16. So if you want to study along with us, go read Acts chapter 16, and you'll see what ends up happening there and how Paul, Paul didn't even want to go to Philippi. This is the first church in Europe. The first convert in Europe happens here. And so this is, these are really our roots as a church in America. This is what happened with the Philippians. And the book of Philippians is actually different than any other letter in the New Testament. Because all it is is a thank you letter from Paul as a missionary who helped plant this church. He was part of a team of people, Luke and Silas, that planted this church 10 years before. And he's writing them back and saying, thanks for your financial contribution. He'll talk about that at the end of the letter. But that's what, what motivated him to write the letter. You, you were financially partnered with me so I can keep preaching the gospel. And he's writing them saying, thanks, I'm so thankful for you. See, a lot of letters he's writing and he's saying, I've got to correct a problem. Like in Corinth, you guys are living, you're whacked in the way that you're living. Like you're out of line. You're following, some are following Apollos, some are following me. You don't follow me, follow Jesus. And some are following this guy, doing all this stuff. And, and you're doing immoral stuff that pagans even think is bad. And so straighten up, he says to the Corinthians. He writes to Galatians. He says, look, you're believing the wrong stuff. You start believing the wrong stuff. You're going to start living the wrong way. He says, you started by faith. Now you're trying to live on your own, trying to do your own development and your spirituality. Don't do that. You start by faith. You live by faith. The Philippians, he says a lot of different things in here. It's ultimately about knowing Christ more. 
He's got that theme of joy, but he's writing in the back and basically just to say thanks. Thank you for being partners in the gospel. Thank you for the way that you live here. Keep doing the stuff that you've been doing, is what he's saying to them. And God will keep changing people's lives. Paul didn't even want to go to Philippi. If you read that in Acts chapter 16, that got me nostalgic this week too. I was thinking about it when my wife and I felt called to plant a church. We weren't thinking Raleigh-Durham, just to tell you that. We pulled out a map. We started looking at Europe. We looked at Europe. We looked at uh, California. We went out to visit California and uh, just felt like we don't fit here. And uh, so we weren't going there. And uh, then I always thought, I always actually thought we'd plant a church in Seattle. Just heard about how lost it was in Seattle and thought, well, we'll probably end up going out there. And in the meantime, my brother-in-law kept calling me and telling me he had lived in Durham and started a business there, and started telling me about all the people that were moving to this area, and all the things that were happening here. And then I read Acts chapter 16. Acts chapter 16, Paul's not planning on going to Philippi, but he has this dream. There's this Macedonian man who's calling him to come to Philippi, and I'm like, my brother-in-law's like the Macedonian man in my story. So if I told the first service, that I don't want to have dreams about him, though. It's kind of hit me. I don't, I don't want to dream about my brother-in-law. That's weird. Uh, but God used that to, to bring us here, and then a team of people assembled here, and then God started changing people's lives with the very thing that happened in Philippi. And that's who he writes to in chapter 1. We'll read the first six verses together. He says, Paul and Timothy, he's identifying himself as the author. And he talks about Timothy. Timothy doesn't co-write the book with him. Some people argue about that, but you can see he doesn't because Paul writes in the first person going through the book. Um, Paul, Timothy's his teammate. It's one of his partners in the gospel. And he says they're both, he doesn't say apostles. In other letters he says apostles he's gonna, because he's going to correct their behavior. He's going to correct their thinking. He's, not, he's writing to friends here. And so he says, Paul and Timothy, servants, which is an interesting statement by Paul because Paul in that very moment is acknowledging that God's changed his life because Paul was an arrogant, self-righteous, religious guy. And now he says he's a servant of Jesus Christ, whom at one time, read Acts chapter 9, he was persecuting the church of Christ. He was against Jesus. And then he says, to all the saints, you say, well, that's not me. I'm not a saint. I mean, I messed up. I just... Here's the deal, especially if you have a Catholic background, let me tell you what a saint is. It's not somebody who does a miracle and has a bunch of spiritual accomplishments and is like above everyone else. It's the varsity team and the rest of us are JV. Saints in the New Testament means set apart ones. It's whoever that God's begun the good work in at the point of salvation. If you've trusted Christ, you've been set apart to be different than the world around you, to be different than the culture, to be different than everyone else, to all the saints. So he's writing to all the believers in Philippi. In Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and the deacons, the leaders in this church, he says, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he tells them, verse 3, I thank my God every time. I'm always thankful for you. Every time I remember you. And he starts talking about his prayers in verse 4. And all my prayers for you, I always pray with joy. It's the first time in the book we see the word joy. We're going to see it multiple times as we go through verse by verse in this. And what's interesting is that Paul's actually in jail when he writes this probably house arrest in Rome, so it's not a deep, dark, musty dungeon that he's in, but he doesn't have freedom. And he's saying here that he has joy, which reminds me of last week's message when we wrapped up Habakkuk. And Habakkuk, remember we talked about the key is what's the source of joy. And so what we see here for Paul is the source of joy is not circumstantial. It's not a person, it's not a career, it's not an achievement, it's not his money, it's not his bank account, it's none of that stuff. His source of joy is ultimately God, and he says that he's got joy in the Philippians because the gospel, the news of God is going forward through them. Verse 5, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day, the very first time that we met, until now, 10 years later. In verse 6, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. So here's something that's key to understand when we study the book of Philippians. You won't find this in commentaries, by the way. As you notice in these first several verses, just even in the first two verses, that Paul's not writing to church people. He's writing to the church at Philippi. What are you talking about? He's not writing to church people. Paul's writing to changed people. And there's a difference. Because it's very possible to be a church person by growing up in church or by coming into church and just assimilating into church. You start to learn the vernacular, the jargon that gets used and how you talk to one another and the right t-shirts to wear and the what would Jesus do bracelets to have on and the stickers on your car and all that kind of stuff. And you start to learn how to live in the Christian subculture. That doesn't mean your life's been transformed by Jesus Christ. And Paul's clearly writing to people here who love the church. They're not against church, but they're not just church people. He's writing to changed people. That's key to understand the whole book of Philippians. Remember who he's writing to in Acts chapter 16. And what they are is they're people that God's begun a good work in. So he saved them. He's changed them. 
These are changed people, and that work is still going on. Verse 6, he who began a good work in you, just the implication of the way he says it, lets us know, even if he didn't say anything else in this verse, the work's still going on, but he says this, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it out, so it's still going. What he's saying is, to these Philippians is, that you're all a work in progress. And it's true for you and for me too here at Southbridge. You are a work in progress. And that's our big idea for the day. It's really a theme, the big idea of the whole book of Philippians, that we're all a work in progress, which is encouraging and discouraging. It's encouraging because if somebody tells you something's wrong with you, I'm a work in progress. My wife tells me, you, you need to work on your patience. Oh, hey, babe, I'm a work in progress. <laughs> you know what else? You can think to yourself. You don't have to say it all but and so are you. <laughs> we all are. We're all a work in progress. So it can be encouraging in that sense. None of us have arrived. None of us are there. We all have things that God's still working on. He's still changing. But it's also discouraging to know you're in a work in progress, especially if you're like me. I like things fixed quickly. If you come to me as one of my friends and trusted person and say, hey, you, this needs to be fixed in your life. You know what I think? I think, all right, I want to do it. How do I do it now? Like, let's fix it. If I know there's a problem, let's get it fixed. And so like last week after church was over with, went to lunch with some friends. And then I, I thought, because it was kind of messy last week, I thought that Crabtree would be empty, that nobody would be there. But I went there and it was packed. Everybody was at the mall. And I have a, an Apple computer and I dropped it on the ground. And so it was broken. And I went there thinking, I'll get it fixed. I'll slide right in. Everybody was at the Apple store. It was like bees on honey. Like everybody was just flying around in the, in the store. And I don't know if you've been to the Apple store, but it's weird. I don't know if it's like a postmodern thing or what, but there's like no clarity on where you're supposed to go. People are just kind of lingering around everywhere. And so I go in there. I got my daughter with me. I walk up to the desk at the back and they look at me like, oh, he's an idiot. Like, why do you come to the desk? She said, do you have an appointment? I don't have an appointment. She goes, you need to go talk to Roy. I'm looking out like, who is Roy? There's like hundreds of people. You ever go to a church and they make an announcement like that? You want to go to the thing? Talk to Ray. <laughs> Who's Ray? Like, I don't know. And so I just walking out there I look these guys all have blue shirts on I got behind the line that was the longest line because I figured he must be the smartest guy because everybody wants to talk to him and so I get in this long line I'm waiting I listen to the guy in front of me he had a broken iPad and uh, he shows it to the guy and then the guy says do you have an appointment I thought he's going to ask me the same question he said no I don't have an appointment he goes oh it's going to be 75 minutes go hang out in this store and we'll find you I thought, I don't want to wait 75 minutes. So I'm milking the fact I got a kid with me, and I'm, go- I'm not going to let him ask me if I have an appointment. So I walk up, and I just start saying, hey, I got this line. Hey, hold on, honey. Uh, I got this lines that are going through my computer screen. Can you look at it? He starts looking at it. He goes, yeah, you're going to have to mail this one in. It's going to take you five days. Then I'm like, can I get the 75-minute option? Like, hold on. Uh, and you know what? I'm still using a computer. It's got lines going through the screens because I don't want to wait five days. What we're talking about here, and we like quick fixes, we're talking about a process that it says in verse 6 is going to take your whole life. So not five days, not 75 minutes, can't get those options. He who began a good work and you will be faithful to complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. So either he comes back and you're done anyways, or you're done and you stand face to face with him and then you become like him, the scriptures tell us. But until then, you will continually be in progress, a work in progress. And I asked myself this week, why? Because God's the one that's doing the work. Look at the verse. He began a good work in you, and he will be faithful to complete the work. There's not a lot for you to do in this passage, by the way. There's a lot for you to understand what he's doing. He's the one doing the work. Why does it take so long? Because we're talking about God. He created the world in an instant. He spoke it into existence. So why am I so much work? Why do I take a whole lifetime to, to, to make me? He could. Now, God could. He's capable of at the moment of salvation making us just like Jesus Christ, but he doesn't. Do you know what that tells us? There's something about the process. There's something about the process that he gets glory as you take little steps, baby steps, and to become more like Jesus. And you make different types of decisions. You start to long for Jesus more than you long for other things that you've longed for before. As he refines you, as you go through suffering, as you're in different relationships, good ones, bad ones, as different things happen at work, there's something about him getting glory as he chisels away all that stuff that doesn't look like Jesus and he makes you more and more like Jesus. And we're all in that process if you've placed your faith in Jesus. And notice who it is that's doing the work. It's him. He, verse 6, he who began a good work in you. That word for began there only appears two times in the New Testament. Once here, and once in Galatians chapter 3 and verse 3. Both times they have to do with salvation. Salvation is the beginning work when you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ. But it's him that's doing the work. But wait, I placed my faith in Jesus. You ever hear people share their testimonies? 
I was studying the Bible. I felt empty inside. I realized life was meaningless. I had achieved a bunch of success, but I still was empty. I needed Jesus. I, I found Jesus. Not that he was lost, but I found him. And it's all these first person pronouns. For I, 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 I. <laughs> Reminds me of a cartoon. Uh, but if you read the scriptures, what the scripture tells us is that God's the one that's doing the work the whole time. Ephesians, another prison epistle, by the way, Ephesians chapter 1 says this, for he chose us in him before the creation of the world. So it wasn't when you started to have God thoughts that you started to move towards God. God picked you before your mom picked a name for you. Before you were in existence, God chose you. Before the world was created, he had you picked out. He was doing the work. But I placed my faith. I was trusting in this, and I shifted my faith to this. You wouldn't even have faith if it wasn't for God. Ephesians chapter 2 says it like this, For it is by grace, grace is when you're given something you don't deserve, for it is by grace you are saved through faith. Aha! Uh-huh. That's when it happened, when I placed my faith. But then look at the next part. And this faith is not from yourselves. It's a gift of God. You wouldn't even have faith if it wasn't for God working in your life. He's the one who does the work. He began the work in you, and guess who does the work? He will be faithful to complete the work. And so what does that mean? Well, it means what we end up doing is we screw it up a lot of times and we start trying to do the work. I need to work on patience. Okay, I'm going to be more patient. I'm just going to sit quietly in a room for a little while. Like, what do you do? And I'll tell you, it gets dangerous when you start letting him do the work. I shared the first service too. I prayed this week that God would grow me in love. You know what ended up happening? I kept getting situations where I kept blowing it. And then I ended up going, God, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have prayed that. Like, I don't want to grow in love. I don't want that to happen. It's like if you get afraid to pray for humility, right? You're just, something terrible is going to happen because it humble you. Because he does the work. It's not about your five steps, three keys. If somebody just to see what we try to do is we try to make being like Jesus so simple because we can't deal with it. And so we want to reduce everything down to the lowest common denominator. And so you hear statements like, let go, let God. Bumper sticker type stuff. Just sit in your identity. Just focus on your salvation and work out your sanctification. All those things sound nice. And there's some truth to them. They're oversimplifications because really what it is to become like Christ is the whole New Testament. It's all of it. And so God takes your circumstances, the victories, the defeats, the difficulties, all that stuff, and he uses it to make you more like Jesus. He's the one that's doing the work. We mess it up when we are the ones that start trying to do the work. The analogy I thought of this week was, I don't know if you've ever watched HGTV or Do-It-Yourself Network or any of those TV shows where they'll have some carpenter come in and do a renovation project. First of all, I didn't realize that in order to be a carpenter, you had to be a supermodel. But I've learned that from watching (laughs) these shows. And so you come in, and uh, they've got, you know, this this lightly trimmed beard and the perfect muscles, and and they apparently know how to use a hammer. And so they go in, and I don't know if they actually do the work. At any rate, whatever. But they go into the houses, and uh, they'll rip out the wall, and then they'll start talking about, who did this? Like, this this house should be condemned. This is, I can't believe you lived. And there's some problems with tube and pipe, whatever kind of wiring, asbestos is in the walls. The tub's about to fall through from the floor right above because they didn't put enough joists in. It's going to cost you $5,000. We didn't budget. It happens every show. But anyway, and they didn't budget for that. And then, uh, and then the, all this stuff happens. And what they end up talking about is how poorly it was done the first time. I wonder to myself, does the guy who did it the first time ever watch these shows? Is he sitting, And what is he thinking when he's sitting at home? Does he think to himself, I'm a moron. Like, why did I do that? Or does he think, no, this guy doesn't know what he's doing. I did it the right way. I don't know. The point is, the right guy wasn't doing the job. And that's what happens with us. And we get so frustrated in our Christianity because we're the ones trying to do all the work. But the verse says, verse 6, go back to it. He who began the work, he did the work of salvation. And he's kind of got it figured out. He was doing it before the world was created. He did that. You wouldn't even have faith if it wasn't for him. Guess who's doing the work of your, what we call sanctification, which is becoming more like Jesus, growing spiritually, spiritual maturity, It's him, that he who began a good work in you, he will carry it on to completion. He's the one doing the work. And Paul's confident that he's the one that's doing the work in these folks because he saw the work begin in these folks back in Acts chapter 16. We don't have time to read the whole thing today, but I can tell you the summary of what happens. He goes to Philippi. He finally listens to the Macedonian man. He heads out that way. He goes to this town. It's about 10,000 people, pretty small town. 
And normally what Paul does, and we study the book of Acts together, and so those of you who are with us through that, you know Paul's pattern was he'd go to the synagogue first because you've got at least religiously interested people. They're at the synagogue, God-fearing people. And some of them are just religious and legalistic and all that stuff. Some of them are genuinely trying to seek God. And so he goes there and he knows their hearts are going to be open. They're Jewish and they're waiting for the Messiah. And he just wants to tell them, you missed him. His name was Jesus. And so he goes to the synagogue. But he could, Philippi, there's no synagogue. Because in order to have a synagogue, you had to have 10 believing Jewish men. They didn't have that many. And so instead, there's a group of women that are meeting outside the town. And he goes and he starts to speak to these women. And the first one that believes in Jesus, her name's Lydia. And we read about her in Acts chapter 16 and verse 14, where it says this. One of those listening was a woman named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth. She was a corporate executive. She had a ran, ran her own business from the city of Thyatira. She did very well. We end up learning later. Who was a worshiper of God. So she was genuinely seeking. And said then, then she came to the conclusion... And she figured it all out, and she studied all the world religions, and she got convicted of her sin. No, it says the Lord's the one who did the work. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. And she places her faith in Christ, and then guess what happens there? At that spot, at that very spot, she gets baptized. I've been to that place, recommitted my own baptism at this place. I've seen the spot where she placed her faith, and she then says, I want to follow, I'm following Jesus. You know what that was like for them then, that Jewish culture? Gets dunked under the water, stands up. I'm public identifying with Jesus Christ. And then you start to see fruit in her life. You keep reading Acts chapter 16, you'll see it yourself. Then the next encounter Paul has, Paul and Silas are walking, and they've got this woman that's following around. She's a demon-possessed gal. And it says in the text, ESV says, that Paul became irritated, which means he's a work in process too. Isn't that awesome? I like that. So whenever I get irritated, I'd be like, well, Paul did it. You know, there's... He gets irritated. He gets annoyed, some translations say. He gets bothered, and he turns around, and if he rebukes the girl... And cast the demon in the name of Jesus, cast the demon out of her. And so Luke, who writes the book of Acts in that section, he says we, so we know that he's there in Philippi. And he says that he doesn't say whether she gets saved. He says that she gets freed from the demon. We can assume that she probably trusted Christ too. We know at the very least she's freed from the bondage of that demon, which is awesome. Except she has an owner. The owner's upset about this. He's losing money. Luke tells us the real reason. He goes to some of the leaders in Philippi and says, these guys are causing an uproar. He doesn't say they throw them in jail because uh, they cast out a demon. He says, these guys are causing an uproar. And so he has the guys, because it's against the law to cause a, a riot, <clears throat> has them flogged. It says it's severely flogged. And so if you've seen the Passion of the Christ, you know what that looks like. And then they throw them in jail, and they put them in the stocks, and they lock the door. And he tells the guards, the leaders tell the guards, watch the, the, these guys specifically. Like there's a prison full of people, but watch these two. And then do you know what happens? Have you read Acts 16? They start singing. What hymn would you sing? They start singing. It is well with my soul, I'm sure. Had to be that one. Before it was written. They had it inspired by the Lord. They're singing this song. But all the other prisoners are listening to this. What kind of impact is that? You talk about joy. Here's some guys that aren't finding joy in the circumstances. Their source is something different. And so they're singing... And then an earthquake happens, and the doors open, and their chains fall off, which I'm not sure how an earthquake makes your chains fall off, but they do. And so God does a miracle. And all the lights are off, but then they, they light some torches. It's not just flip the switch, but they turn the lights back on by lighting some torches. And they see that the Philippian jailer, he'd rather die than face his bosses with this failure. And so he's about to kill himself. And Paul says, no, 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 don't kill yourself. We're all here. Think about that statement. Not just Paul and Silas are there. All those criminals are still there too. We didn't leave. That's a miracle. And then the guy says, I want what you have. The guys that are singing in the midst of the situation, that you would stay here when you're free to run off. And he says, what must I do to be saved? And the Philippian jailer places his faith in Christ, and this whole family comes to Christ, and they get baptized. And you see, he knows that the good work has begun, that God was doing the work, because God started doing stuff only God can do. So then I think about that as our church, and reflecting back this, this week on the history of our church, and I remember one of the first people that trusted Christ at our church was a guy we were meeting in that room that you saw the picture of, and it was a Christmas time period, and I did a simple gospel presentation, and I just said, hey, bow your heads and close your eyes. If anybody wants to trust Christ, just raise your hand. And this guy had started coming a few weeks earlier, and I remember when he came, I remember what he was wearing. Like, I can still picture this guy when he came in. He's a business guy, shows up. He's got churched. He's a church person, not a change person. And uh, he comes to the meeting, and he raises his hand. It's only got like 50 people right at this deal. Maybe, I don't know, it might have been 70, but it was a small, smaller group. And uh, I went to a small group that night, and one of the ladies in my small group said to me, I just want to confess, uh, when you said bow your head and close your eyes, I was peeking. <laughs> oh, naughty Christians. Anyway, 
she said. And this guy raises his hand. And so here we are, just this little small church. And she said, I felt like that was a gift to me from God to be able to see that God was changing somebody's life. And so what ended up happening is this guy places faith in Jesus. Then he goes on, and God does an amazing work in his marriage, starts to refine him, starts to deal with sin in his life, starts to deal with his past, starts to transform him. He doesn't go to our church anymore. He lives in another state now. But God did a work. I wonder what work he does. And Lydia, this business person who comes to Christ, one of the first people, comes to Christ. I started thinking about when we first got here to the theater. We don't oftentimes do like a come forward invitation because it's kind of an odd, you know, the environment with the sloped floor and all that kind of business. But uh, we did one one Sunday. I remember two ladies coming down and I greeted them. They both ended up praying to receive Christ. My, my wife sat down with them and uh, one of them was a young lady, blonde hair, named Michelle McCann, so many of you know who greets out at the front. It's on our staff, who God's then used in our church to bring hope and healing to a bunch of women in our church, a bunch of people in our church. And I wonder how I used some of the other women that were in that group. Because it wasn't probably just Lydia that came to Christ. That's just who Luke points out to us. I wonder if he used the demon-possessed gal. I wonder what happened with the Philippian jailer. Who did he become? So I was thinking this week, we're going to lay hands on pretty soon a guy named J.D. Henserling to be an elder in our church. We've been through that process. And in a couple of weeks, we're going to lay hands on him and officially make him an elder. And I remember one week when he came forward. You know, we didn't do that a lot, but I started thinking about the different people who did come forward. And he had already trusted Christ, and he and his wife came down, though, and they wanted to pray about fully surrendering everything to Jesus. And now he's going to be the leader in our church. And I thought, I wonder if the Philippian jailer, if he's one of the overseers and deacons that are mentioned when he talks about, like, who is Paul thinking about when he's writing? Because he knows who the faces are, not just the, he doesn't know every person there because the church has changed over 10 years, but he knows, and he knows that they've been changed, and he knows that God did the work because he saw the work. And I, could, I started thinking I could, could talk about all kinds of people. I was visiting this week Danny Lotz, one of our first elders in our church, and just talking to him about the work that God did in his life and how God used him even to change my life when we were first planting this church. I remember when we first met, I didn't think Danny was going to go to our church. And uh, he started asking me, we were sitting at Cracker Barrel off of 40 uh, over by Morrisville Mall. Do you know where that is? No one goes over there. And so if you ever want to hang out, that's a great place. Anyway, <clears throat> we're hanging out over there, and we're just talking. He's asking me questions like, are you going to have drums at this church? And the wrong answer was yes, and that's the one I gave. And uh, he said, are you going to wear a tie? And I was like, well, I don't wear a tie very often. Probably not. And uh, that would have been the right answer. Yes, you are. And uh, we were going through all that stuff. I said, here's the deal. We're going to preach the gospel, and we're going to trust God to change people's lives. And so I saw this guy. He's in his 60s who hates the drums, doesn't want you not wearing a tie, don't look like a real pastor. Like, he still jokes to me about all that kind of stuff. But what matters most is I saw maturity in him. So you put off the stuff that's secondary and focus on what really matters, the gospel, we became partners in the gospel and developed a friendship that we have that's changed both of our lives. God does that. That's only God can do that work. And so, what about you? Is God doing that work in you? I think about all of our staff. I could name every staff person, how God's done a work in their life just to bring them to be on staff. Pastor Jason was the first one here. So if I was writing a letter, I'd be like, Scott and Jason, servants of Jesus Christ, I'd write to you and say that. He had a job, was going to get a promotion in this job, was had a guaranteed salary. I said, hey, I don't even know if anybody's going to show up. I can't guarantee you a salary, but by faith, he and his family come here, plant this church. And if you saw a picture of Pastor Jad, Pastor Jad's been here from the beginning. He basically served like a staff member, only we never paid him any money until he came on staff, which meant he left a corporate job in the science world and got paid a lot less money to come here. Why? Because he likes to play guitar? No. He play the guitar as a volunteer. Because he wants to teach our church how to be better worshipers. Because he loves worshiping Jesus. He wants to connect you to Jesus for life change. John Cullen has got a story like Abraham just leaving here, coming here, didn't have a job, didn't know anything about that, leaving without knowing where he was going. Shows up here, his pastor told him not to come. Comes here and I's our executive pastor. Brad Altice just became pastor this week of our children's ministry. He left a corporate job at IBM, getting paid a good amount of money to be an intern at our church, which, by the way, that's a demotion from the world's perspective. But he wanted to give his life away for the sake of the gospel and see people's lives changed. See, only God can do that kind of work. And that's the kind of work that that was being done here. He began a good work in these believers in Philippi, and then Paul's saying, and he's continuing to work. He's continuing to change. He's continuing to do a work. And I, I'm confident that God's the one that's going to be able to do it. And he's told them that he prays for them, but then he tells them what he prays for them. What he prays for them is basically the themes that happen through the book of Philippians. And the themes are the growth process. And he talks about first the foundation. He tells them in verses 7 and 8, which is really a transition from verse 6, how he feels about them. And then in verses 9 through 11, he tells them this process. And I'll just hit the process real quick. He says, being confident of this, that he who began a good work and you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. We're all a work in process, progress. It is right for me to feel this way about you, all of you, he says, 
since I have you in my heart. For whether I am in chains, which he is, or defending and confirming the gospel, which they've seen him do, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify, he can be my witness, how I long for you, for all of you, with affection of Christ Jesus. And so it's not just a sentimentalism, it's this, that God's placed this in me for you, that I want to love you the way that Christ loves you, and the only way I can do it is when Christ does it through me. And this is my prayer. Not just that he prays. He says, remember, every time I pray, I'm thankful for you with joy. He told them that he prays for them, but he tells them what he prays for them. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight. And so here he starts off talking about spiritual growth. The first thing, the foundational thing, is that your love would grow. I'm talking about love here. It's not a static thing. You don't just decide you love something or someone at one point, and then that's it. Love's dynamic. It increases. It can decrease. And so he's saying, I pray that your love may abound more and more. The word he uses for love here, there's multiple words that are used for love in the New Testament. There's three specifically that get pointed out. There are multiple Greek words for love. This is agape love. It's God's kind of love. It's a selfless love. That's what it means. It means that you love for the sake of another. That you're willing to lay your life down. That you're willing to sacrifice. Jesus says it like this, greater love has no one than this, that he laid down his life for his friends. But then you think about what Jesus did. Jesus didn't lay his life down for his friends. We weren't his friends. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We were his enemies. He tells us, you know, even pagans love their family members, but you love your enemy. Jesus died for us when we were against him. A lot of times we think about it and we think we are the apple of his eye. We are his sweet three-year-old, right? That he just couldn't imagine going to hell. And so he'd give anything so that his three-year-old could go to heaven. And we kind of sentimentalize the cross. That is not what happened. What happened was that he was living for the glory of God and we were living for our own glory. We were against him. That he was living for the will of God. Not my will, but yours be done. We were living for our own will. Not your will, but mine be done. He was living for God's plan. We were living for our plan. He was living for perfection and walked over in a perfect life. We were sinners against God, rebelling against God. We were his enemies. And while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He laid his life down for us. That is agape love. That is selfless love. He did what was best for us, sacrificing himself, laying his own life down. And what Paul says is, I pray that your agape love, your sacrificial love, that kind of love would abound. And what would that love be for, by the way? Did you look at the verse? What's the object of the love? There's no object. He says that the way that it would happen, that you abound more and more in knowledge, but not that you'd have love for knowledge, not a love for depth of insight. So what are you supposed to love? God? Other people? Your church? The church in general? Doritos? Like, what do you love? There's no object. And what Paul was saying here was this. He's talking about a limitless love. Don't limit it to one thing. No, I'm not talking about that kind of love. I'm talking about God's kind of love. Paul prays for God's kind of love that we'd know it. In Ephesians chapter 3, one of my favorite passages in the Bible, Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 through 19, says, I pray that you'd know the height and depth and length and width of God's love. Do you know what? God's love doesn't have a height and depth and length and width. He's trying to get them to be able to picture it. God's love is limitless. He's an infinite God with infinite love. And what Paul's saying here in this passage, by not putting an object for the love is, I'm praying that you would abound, like you have a capacity for love. Humanly speaking, you have a capacity for love. And I'm praying that you will overflow. That it will abound more and more. And as you learn more and more about loving, that you just grow in love. That's how it happens. You've got to learn. It takes knowledge. Say, how do I grow in love? You don't just like work up emotions. Like, I'm going to love more. I want to love. You don't sing so. I mean, what you don't, that's not how it happens. You've got to learn about love. It's by learning about God. God is love. If you didn't know about his love, you could never love the way that God loves. We love him because he first loved us, we're told in 1 John. So in other words, let me put the verse the other way. If you didn't know about how he first loved you, you would never love him. Because you'd never know about his kind of love. Now, the world has definitions of love. And what love is like a sentimentality. Sometimes they use love for the word lust is what they really mean. It's oftentimes about self, like what can I get out of it? I love you because you make me feel a certain way. I love you because you do these things for me. I love you because, and it's all that. That's not God's kind of love. So one of the things we believe sometimes is if someone knew the real me, I've struggled with this myself. If you really knew me, then you wouldn't love me. Because I got a lot of unlovable things. And you know, that's not a lie. That is true. There are a lot of people that if they really knew you, they wouldn't love you. So don't let me tell you, oh, that's a lie. I don't believe that. That's, that is true. Based on that kind of love, not with God's kind of love. And the more you know about God's kind of love, guess what happens? The more you start to love him, you grow in love. 
And so one of the things, I, one of my favorite passages in the Bible, Psalm 139, because it tells me how well God knows me. And then I read the rest of the Bible and I say, and he still loves me? Well, then I love him more. And then I grow in love. And as you grow in love for God, you grow in love for people. And then love starts to overflow in your life. It's the more you learn, the more you love. It's like this week, I took my wife to the movies. And uh, we went to the movies. I know my wife pretty well. We've known each other for more than half of our lives. And so I know things about her. It's not like I'm, I'm not, I told the first service, I don't, I don't wake up and say, hey, what's your favorite color, by the way? <laughs> We're kind of past that stage. And so I know her favorite color. I know what kind of music she likes. I know that kind of stuff. And I know that she loves popcorn. Okay, loves popcorn. It's her favorite snack. And so at our house, she'll say to me, do you want to have popcorn for a snack? And it doesn't matter if I want popcorn. I'm going to say yes, because I know that means that gives like her permission to make popcorn so she can eat it. I don't even, I don't even have to eat it. She's like, yeah, yeah, that sounds great. Go ahead. So she'll make popcorn. She would make popcorn for dinner if I requested it. She loves popcorn. So we go to this movie. I said, would you like some popcorn? She said, no, which surprised me. So usually we go to a movie. If I ask her if she wants popcorn, she's like, yeah, of course I want popcorn. And uh, she said, no, this time we go in, it's packed. Like the place is full. And so you can hear everybody wrinkling their papers and pulling their Coke bottles out of their jackets and all that kind of stuff as we're sitting there. And, and I can smell popcorn. And I'm thinking to myself, I want, now that I smell popcorn, I want popcorn. And I leaned over uh, to Shannon and she said, the smell of popcorn is making me sick. And I was thinking, what in the world? Like, what's wrong with you? What, do you? what do you mean? I said, you love popcorn. She said, I like my popcorn. I think other people's popcorn is gross. And she said, this smelling, it makes me want to throw up. And I thought, that's weird, and I didn't know that about you. And then I looked at her, and I said, I love you. I love knowing the quirky stuff, and I'll learn new things about you. And the more I learn, the more I love. See, that's how love grows. The more you learn about God's love for you, the more you love him, and guess what happens? The more you love him, the scripture then tells us, that's why loving him is the most important thing, the more you'll love other people, and the more you love other people, then more love overflows in your life as you start to lay your life down for the sake of other people. That's how you grow in love, is that you learn more about him. Not a lot for us to do in this passage. There aren't a bunch of commandments here. He's not even praying these things. Are you going to grow in love? You need to learn more about God. So you need to be in relationship with him. He's got to begin that work, and then you continue to grow, and you continue to see his love, and you see his love in other people. In fact, the movie that we saw illustrates this. We went to go see the movie um, Dropbox. I don't know if any of you saw that movie or not. It was out this past week. Focus on the Family put it on as a documentary. It was actually about a pastor in Korea, and his name was Pastor Lee. And what ended up happening with Pastor Lee is that uh, he had a baby dropped off at his front door uh, one day and started to take these children in. And what he ended up learning was that a bunch of people were dropping babies off in the street, and they were dying. Now, you've got this perfectionistic Korean society. Any of you that are from that culture, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Everything's got to be right all the time. And then you've got people that are just abandoning kids out in the street, and no one's talking about this. And so he learns about it, and so he builds on the side of his house a drop box for people to bring unwanted children, so people that have no hope. And they're going to abort this child. They're going to abandon this child. They're going to let the child die on the streets. Instead of doing that, bring them to this box. And so he takes these children in. And the way the, the movie starts is just overwhelming from the beginning because what happens is they start going through his house. And you don't know how many kids he has, but you just see all these kids. And a bunch of them have disabilities, like severe disabilities. And so I'm watching and I'm thinking to myself, every one of these kids that I'm seeing, that would be like a full-time job just taking care of that one child. And there's multiple ones. How many of these kids are his? There's been over 350 kids that have been dropped off in that drop box. He hasn't adopted each one himself, but several he has. I believe it was 15 of them. But many of them come through the house and he helps them find families. And he starts telling stories. Every story that he tells is heartbreaking. But what you end up learning through the movie, and it's not out now, so I'm going to give you some of the, the ending here is that uh, his, one of his biological children, his second child, was a son that was born that had severe disabilities. He's never walked. He's 26 years old now and needs constant care. And what happened was that Pastor Lee, when he first had this child, asked a question probably all of us would ask, why? Why this situation? Why do I have this? Why me? And he repented of that, and then God used that son to teach him about dignity of life. To teach him about laying his life down for the sake of someone else. To teach him about love. And God grew his capacity for love. And with every child, he grows his capacity with love more and more, growing more and more. But what ended up hitting me the most was at the end of the movie, when it's all over with, it's this documentary, 
and focus on the family put it on so focus on the family does an, like an event style where they bring in they start interviewing people they interviewed the director of the movie and they brought the director out the director comes out and says that he was reading the newspaper in LA and saw the story of Pastor Lee and had decided that would be his ticket to the Sundance Film Festival. He was going to make a movie and show the perfectionistic Korean society versus this guy taking these deformed children, disabled children, and bringing them in and caring for them. And uh, he thought that would get him to the Sundance Film Festival. And he said people would come to him and say, you have a savior complex. You're this white guy. His name's Brian. He's a white guy, and you think you're going to go to Korea, and you're going to get money pouring in to help this ministry and do all this stuff. And he goes, I didn't have a savior complex. I had a Sundance complex. It was an ambition that he wanted to do this stuff. But he started going there. He started seeing Pastor Lee, the way Pastor Lee would love on these kids. And broke his heart. Hadn't seen love like this before. Came back to California and heard a pastor preach a message about how Jesus Christ became our sin. And he said, as I heard the pastor talk about Jesus becoming my sin, I started to imagine. He said, imagine a past bad relationship I had and Jesus Christ becoming the sin that I did in that situation. Becoming my sin. Started thinking about his life and Jesus becoming sin. Think about that love. And he said, and I became a Christian. God transformed. He began the work in him. That's when I got overwhelmed with emotion. God did that miracle? Like, it's, it's awesome to be showing the gospel and adopting kids. But then God's at the one that's at work that's actually doing the work to train Pastor Lee's heart to love more and more to be able to do that. And then he does it, uses that to then bring somebody else into the family of God, transform and does his miracle. Not church people. It's changing people. He still does that work. He's growing in love. That's the foundational part. So that what? Well, he tells us it's so that, the next part, not that just that we grow in love, but that we grow in discernment. He says in verse 10, so that, I'm going to grow you in love, but it's not just that you'll love more. It's not just that we all get along better. It's not just that we love more. It's not just that we love whatever. So that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless until the day of Christ. So what does it mean to discern? Discernment is not that you know right from wrong. Okay, it's not just that you can know the kind of the black and white stuff. You're driving to work. Should I rob that bank or should I drive the rest of the way to work? You don't need discernment for that decision. The Bible tells us. Thou shalt not steal. Should I lie? The Bible tells us. You don't need discernment for that. Should I commit adultery? The Bible tells us. You already the right and wrong is nailed down. That's not what you need to decide. That's not what discernment is for. You know what discernment is for? It's deciding what's best, the verse tells us. So have you ever had a situation where you can decide between two good things? Should I take job A or job B? Should I, the person I was talking with last week after the, the message was over with, should I go on the mission field or should I live on mission here in Raleigh? I need some discernment. There's not an easy answer. Ever had situation, what about this relationship or that relationship? What? Need some discernment. What college should I pick? Need discernment. To know what is best. Picking between a couple good things, and then life's happening, and you've got distractions that are taking place. And then we're going to talk more about this when we get to Philippians chapter 3. In Philippians chapter 3, what ends up happening is Paul shows us a new level of discernment. He talks about how at one time he was living his life, he was doing really well in school, was doing really well with his career, was accomplishing a bunch of things, was self-righteous, was righteous. He doesn't call himself righteous there. Everybody thought he was righteous. He was very religious. And he says, I consider that a whole bunch of, and he swears, a bunch of crap compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For whose sake, I'd forsake all things. It's all a loss compared to knowing Christ. And I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. Everybody wants that, right? And the fellowship of his suffering. Who wants that? He's crucified. Fellowship means to have a common experience. I want, I want, I want that. Paul's got a different level of discernment than most of us. Most of us, we talk about what's best. It's who offers the better benefits package. When we talk about what's best, it's which one makes me feel more significant? Which one matters more? Paul's talking about a different level of discernment. This is the guy who, while he's in prison, is praying with joy. This is a guy that, that ends up seeing this church get started as he's sitting in prison after being severely flogged, and he's singing songs. He's got a different level of discernment than most of us. The sermon is, listen, if, if it takes bad circumstances and it takes difficulty for me to know Christ more, but I want that because that's best. I want, I want Christ to be known through my life. It doesn't, if I have to go to jail so that more people can hear about Jesus, then I'll go to jail. That's discernment. He knows what's best. And how does that happen? How do you grow in discernment? You grow in love. 
You got to grow in love. You're growing in love, verse 10, so that you then grow in discernment so you can know what's best. And then what? It tells us the last one, the, that you'd, have the, you'd be filled with the fruit of righteousness. Not that you would fill yourself with the fruit of righteousness, that you would be filled, passive here, with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. And so not only would you grow in love, not only would you grow in discernment, but you'd grow in good deeds. There would be an overflow of your love. And what's it for? It's all for an end. The end is not you. The end is not you'd grow for the sake of growth. The end is not that you'd grow so that you'd feel more like Jesus. You'd grow for the sake of the glory of God. So your life isn't even about you. That's why he's the one that's doing the work. That He's the one that'll be faithful. We mess it up a lot of the times. And then he starts cleaning up the process, cleaning up the mess. His mercies are new every day. It's all for his glory. So as we conclude this morning, What's going to end up happening is you're going to see these themes throughout the book of Philippians. I hope you'll stick with us through the series and God will change your life and that we'll become a church that like this prayer says that we bring more and more glory to God as God changes more and more lives as we grow in love as we, he does a work and we're all a work in progress. Even when the building's done, we're going to be a work in progress until he comes back or we die. So I'm going to pray for us as a church as we wrap up this morning. And I'm just going to pray a prayer like what Paul prayed for the, the believers in Philippi. That we'd bring God more glory, that he'd do the work, that he'd grow us in love. And so let's pray. Father, I come before you right now. And I just pray like Paul. I pray that I can get to a place like Paul where no matter what the circumstances are in my life, I find joy because of you. And I thank you for the believers at Southbridge. And I, I pray for those that are yet to become believers, that you'd change them. Do not let them become church people and start playing religious games with you, please. Please do not let that ever happen. But change them, save them. And those of us who are saved, those of us who have been changed because you've begun that work in us, Father God, I pray that you'd grow us into your love and, and do whatever you have to do to do that. Bring whatever circumstances, bring whatever people, bring whatever you desire to do, but grow us in your love. And grow us more and more in an understanding of who you are and a knowledge and the depth of insight of your love so that, God, that we would then have discernment and be able to know what is best and all of us have decisions to make. I pray that you give us discernment as we focus on you and focus on your love and we can see your son Jesus Christ in the situation. And we go to the situation that would then ultimately be the best situation because we'd know you most through it. And put us in situations that require us to trust you. Put us in situations where we have to grow in love for you. And Father God, I pray that you'd use that to produce a fruit of righteousness, of good deeds in our lives that other people would see and that you would receive glory for it. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. As we conclude this morning, I just want to say to you, if you need to start a relationship with Jesus Christ, I invite it if you've never met me before, uh, that I'll be under the blue tent. I'd love to talk with you today, even if we do know each other, even if you've been playing religious games and I'd be surprised that you're not a Christian. If you want to trust Jesus, I'm going to be under the blue tent in just a moment. And I hope that everybody here knows God loves you more than I could ever put into words. And that we love you as a church, as a church staff. We pray for you regularly. I pray for you regularly. I pray that you would know Christ. And you'd know them the way that Paul talks about in this book. And so I hope you'll stick with us through the series. And we'll see you next week. See ya.